Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13, we read, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God, and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them in all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him saying, abide with us. For it's toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass that as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened that they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us? As he talked with us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us. Can you imagine? On Resurrection Sunday, Jesus goes for a walk with two people, one named, one unnamed. On Resurrection Sunday, we live in a culture and a society where a number of people do a number of different things. I happen to think that maybe you've been thinking about how best to spend your Resurrection Sunday. Well, I'm going to invite you to take a walk with Jesus and to hear a Bible study. In 1966, Time Magazine published its first all-print cover. In a black field in bold red letters were the words, Is God dead? 
A few years later, the same magazine ran another cover with the words, Is God coming back to life? Once again, Time Magazine has introduced another all-print cover. In a black field, in bold red letters this month, the magazine read, Is truth dead? A better question might be, Does truth matter? Because the moment you ask the question, is truth dead? It implies that there is such a thing as truth. And even making the statement itself becomes con a, a, a contradiction in, in, in statement. If there is no such thing as truth, then how can you make a truth claim like there is no such thing as truth? Each year, each year, the skeptic, each year, the critic, each year, the doubter, each year... The cynic is invited to deny the Bible, dismiss the, the resurrection, misrepresent the Lord Jesus. The resurrection is the heart of Christianity and is our keystone in the arch of truth. The death of Jesus speaks of the love of God. The resurrection of Jesus speaks of the power of God. Long ago, the United States Congress issued a special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Bible. It was simply a copy of our Bible with all the references to the supernatural eliminated. Jefferson, in making his selections from the Bible, confined himself solely to the moral teachings of Jesus. The closing words of the gospel narratives in Jefferson's Bible reads this way. There they laid Jesus. They rolled a great stone to the mouth of the sepulcher and departed, unquote. If our Bible ended like that, it would mean that there is no resurrection. And if there was no resurrection for Jesus, then there's no resurrection for you and no resurrection for me. About 1930, the Bolshevik Bukharin journeyed from Moscow to Kiev. His mission, he was going to address a gigantic assembly. His subject, atheism. And for a solid hour, he hammered the crowd. And he aimed his heavy artillery at Christianity, at Christ and the resurrection. And he hurled ridicule and insult and mocking. And at last, he was finished. And he viewed what he believed was the smoldering ashes of what used to be men's faith. He said... Are there any questions, comrades? And one small peasant went up. He said, may I be allowed to speak? And he took the platform and he looked from his left out onto the crowd, onto his right. And he said the simple words. He is risen. <laughs> and like a gigantic avalanche in one booming voice the 20,000 plus people who were there said yeah there is a lot of pressure to deny your faith 
and to distance yourself from the truth. All these questions have the same answer. See if you can guess. What gives a widow courage as she stands before a fresh grave? What's the ultimate hope for the cripple, the amputee, the burn victim? How can the parents of a brain damaged or handicapped child keep from living their lives in total despair? What happens to anyone who is blind or paralyzed? How can they be encouraged to think about life beyond the grave? What provides hope for parents of loved ones who watched their loved ones lowered into the grave or see their ashes spread at sea? Where do the thoughts of a young couple go when they finally recover from the anguish and grief of burying their baby? What about the tragic news of mothers and fathers whose child was murdered or parents killed in a plane crash or the child who overdoses on drugs? What is the single focus? What becomes the singular fact? What is the final answer to pain, mourning, senility, insanity, terminal disease, sudden calamity, fatal accident? I hope you finally guessed the correct answer. It has to be the hope of the resurrection. It begins... In our story with Jesus in disguise, look what it says in verse 13. Now behold, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles or 60 stadia from Jerusalem. Notice how the passage begins with an unexpected reunion in verses 13 through 16. Jesus joins two people in a heated discussion. All of these things which happened, verse 14, the text says. It says that their eyes were restrained. They didn't know him. They didn't recognize him, it says in verse 16. And by the way, this is the third resurrection appearance that's mentioned in the New Testament of Jesus to his friends and his disciples. He has already shown himself to be alive to Mary Magdalene. The second appearance takes place in Mark chapter 16, verses 2 through 8. And Luke's version has it in chapter 24, verses 1 through 11. But now Jesus shows up in disguise, incognito. It's interesting to me. It would appear that he does so for very good reason. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, now faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You would think that the best way to convince someone of his resurrection is to just simply reveal himself and say, it's me. Hello. Hey, remember me? Scars, that crown of thorn. Uh, pretty easy to recognize, but that's not what happens. The sad travelers are going to be given an opportunity to experience faith. One of the travelers' name is Cleopas. Like I said, the other is 
unnamed. I like to insert my name there. I like to think that I'm the other person on this journey, taking this walk. The village of Emmaus, and I've been to this village from Jerusalem. It's about some seven or eight miles west of Jerusalem. It may be that one or both of them lived in Emmaus. Because later, you'll remember in verse 29, Jesus says, they say to Jesus, come and abide with us. The idea is, it's evening. Why don't you just spend some time here with us? One thing we know about Emmaus, it's the wrong direction. The resurrection has just taken place in Jerusalem. The empty tomb is in Jerusalem. The fellowship is in Jerusalem. And before the day is finally up, these disciples will get up and they will return to Jerusalem. And it says, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. We know they spoke of the events surrounding the arrest and the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. Jesus is going to probe them for further details in verse 17. And Cleopas is going to provide those details. It says in verse 15, So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. While they spoke and reasoned, Jesus himself draws near and listens in to this conversation. Now, I want you to understand something. When you woke up this morning, you had conversations about the day and about your journey and about the direction that you would take. And Jesus drew near. He came up beside you and listened carefully and intently. You see, it's true that Jesus draws near when we speak about him, and we're speaking about our day, it is possible that Jesus shows up in our conversations with our family and our friends, and most certainly when we're having conversations with the cynic and the skeptic and the person who's unfamiliar with Jesus, who have no idea who you are or what you're doing. And so for many people, you might have come here, you might have come to church at the urging of a friend or out of respect for your family or to observe a religious holiday, but you never anticipate that Jesus would actually show up and listen to the thoughts in your mind and the conversations in your heart and then begin to look at the condition of your heart. The word reasoned in this passage can also mean debate. When it says they talked together of these things which had happened and they reasoned. What were they reasoning? We already know. They've already talked about the reasoning behind the religious leaders have taken Jesus and have killed him. They have placed him in a tomb, but the body is gone. There's an empty tomb. There's an angelic visit. There's an eyewitness testimony. They're trying to come up with an explanation of what's happened in their life and in their circumstances. And look what it says in verse 16. And their eyes were restrained so that they did not 
see him or know him that is in an act of familiarity. This, by the way, was an act of divine intervention. Jesus can and will withhold his identity when it suits his purposes. It's happened to you, if you want to be honest. I want you to think about that time that you go, Jesus is here, I sense his presence. But guess what? Jesus is here even when you don't sense his presence. The presence or the absence of Jesus isn't based on whether or not you sense him. But sometimes you do, and those are wonderful, sweet times, aren't they? Where you say, I sense the presence of God. I sense the favor of God. I sense the presence of Jesus. And by the way, it wouldn't have been unusual for a Jewish pilgrim to join other Jewish pilgrims who are making their journeys throughout the land, particularly during the time of Passover. And so we see Jesus, the hope in shattered dreams in verse 17, and it says, and he said to them, hey, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Weist translates this verse, What are these words you're tossing to and fro in such an animated and heated fashion as you keep walking? And they came to a standstill with a gloomy countenance, unquote. Our modern version would read this way. Dids, why are you so bummed out? (laughs) That's exactly right. I couldn't help but noticing, how are you so unhappy? What's going on? Verse 18, then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? It would be like if you were from Hope, Arkansas, and you said, Are you the only one who, have you just fallen off a potato truck? Or imagine, can you imagine someone say, are you not on social media? You don't have a Facebook account? You don't have a Twitter account? You don't, how could you not know what's going on? How could you be so clueless? We have instant access to information. We have TV. We have cable. We have internet. We have social media. We have handheld devices. We have this barrage of information as we keep on getting inundated. People don't know everything about everything, but I'll bet every single person in this room knows that a person was dragged off a United flight and broke his front teeth and his nose. More people find information in more ways than ever before. The events in Jerusalem just a few days earlier had had an enormous impact on the general public. Hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of visitors had visited Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus may have been a country preacher from a small village in the Galilee, but he had made a lasting impact on the public. He had opened blind eyes and deaf ears. He had brought people back to life. He did the most amazing things that had ever been done. And so... The whole country and the whole world would hear the news about Jesus. And the same is true today. 
People cram into churches all across the world. There is a reason why people have gathered all over the planet over the last several hours because something, they know something, something happened almost 2,000 years ago that not only changed the course of human history but forever altered humanity. People distance themselves from, quote, the things which happened there in Jerusalem in those days. What happened there? A man was taken, a man was arrested, a man was crucified and killed. But did Jesus really rise from the dead the way the Bible describes? Why are so many people willing to hold on to religion, but they're willing to let go of Christ? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? If Jesus did not really rise from the dead, then why are we content to feed each other with moral messages and talk about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man and the neighborhood of Denver? Was the resurrection of Jesus a hoax, a fantasy, a fabrication? Was his resurrection physical or spiritual? Did he rise in the same body in which he was executed? Or did he rise with a different body? Do the answers really matter? And now we're back to the cover of Time magazine. Is truth dead? And I say... Truth is still alive. The real question is, does truth matter? Does it matter to you? And look what it says in verse 19. And he said to them, <laughs> what things? So they said to them, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. What's interesting to me is that the answer of Jesus borders on the comical. Can you imagine being with Jesus and he looks at you and he says, tell me what's happening. What things are going on? And the disciples, remember, had placed their hopes and dreams on Jesus. That's what it says in verse 21. But we were hoping. That it was he who was going to redeem Israel indeed. Besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. Now think about what you're reading and what it says. We're disappointed. We were completely in awe of Jesus. Jesus did the most unexpected things. Physically, socially, relationally. Everything that Jesus did was un almost unbelievable. And so he says, but there was one thing else. We, we, we saw him open blind eyes. We saw him open deaf ears. We saw him bring the, the, the dead back to life. We saw him and say the most incredible things that have ever been said. But we had a further hope. We were hoping, we were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. But now their hopes were shattered and their dreams dissolved. 
because they were hoping for a social liberation. They were hoping for a political liberation. They were hoping for freedom and redemption from bondage to Rome. It never occurred to them that their real problem was spiritual and that their most pressing problem was sin. And now Jesus is dead. And because it's the third day since these things have happened, what things? Since the arrest, since the trial, since the painful execution, since his placement in the tomb. So what do you do? What do you do when you've staked all your hopes and all your dreams on a single idea or a single person or a group of ideas? You've, you've staked your claim because your life hasn't turned out the way that you had hoped it. Your marriage didn't turn out the way that it, you'd hoped. Your ministry didn't turn out the way that you hoped. You had put all of your hopes and your dreams and your ambitions and you were hoping, you were hoping that things were going to be different. You were hoping that things were going to be different. Maybe if I go to church, maybe if I read my Bible, maybe if I become a Christian, maybe if I do this, maybe if I do that. What do you do? What do you do when life takes an unexpected turn? What do you do when the things that you had hoped don't turn out the way that you hope? You had hoped that you were going to live a different kind of a life and you were going to have a different kind of a marriage and you were going to have a different kind of way of living. Many people are afraid to plan or dream or hope because they can't bear the thought of failure or disappointment. These disciples were in part expecting this political Messiah to liberate them from the oppression of Rome and the bondage of occupation, they were still unable to come to grips with the fact that a Jesus, this would be a suffering Jesus, a suffering Messiah, one who would die, who would liberate them from the tyranny of the thing that is causing the most problems. Sin. Pride. The sin that is there, it's always been man's greatest plague. It has always been the biggest threat. There's a reason why Jesus came. He loves you. There's a reason why Jesus dies. In order to forgive you. There's a reason why Jesus comes back to life. Because there's nothing, there's nothing, there is nothing more important than the condition of your heart and the circumstances of your soul and the future that it entails. In verse 22, it says, Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. In what way? They told a story, if you read Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, that Jesus had showed up. 
that, that there was an angel that, that said that he had risen from the dead. They astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that he had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Think about what you're reading right at this very moment from Cleopas and this other disciple. We've already heard that the tomb is empty. We've already heard that there was an angelic visitation. We've already heard of a testimony of women that he had come back to life. We've already heard that the body is gone. Think about what you're reading. And we don't believe it. Don't you ever wonder, as you watch those time travel programs on TV, how they always go back to the only place that you, the, 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 to the one place that you wish they'd go back to. Go back to Jerusalem. Go back on, on Sunday morning, on the Resurrection Sunday. Go, or, or go on Friday. Look at the events. Go see the events surrounding the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Wouldn't you like to have been there? Wouldn't you on Resurrection Sunday? Can you imagine positioning yourself where the Roman soldiers are, watching the place light up, watching the stone roll away, watching the angel sit on the stone? In verses 19 through 24, Cleopas communicates the facts as he understands them. In verse 19, he calls Jesus a prophet. So do Muslims. So do Mormons. So do some Jews. So do some others. There are people that you're going to watch on the History Channel and the Discovery Channel and on CNN. And they're going to refer to Prophet Jesus. Cleopas is either unwilling or unable to call him God's Messiah. Many people today know the circumstances surrounding the death of Jesus. They can cite the scriptures and they can articulate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, but they don't really believe it in their hearts. And this is so much what I want you to believe after hearing this story for so many years in so many ways under so many circumstances to believe the story in your heart someone has likened belief in the resurrection to four different stages number one it's a fairy tale it's a myth it's unbelievable verse 22 skeptical but at least willing to check out the facts in verse 23 look what it says in verse 23 when they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels that said he was alive. Peter and John went back to the tomb after hearing the testimony and were at least willing to check out the facts to see whether or not this in fact happened. And then they have a personal encounter with Jesus in verse 31. Look what it says. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him. And number four, they commit themselves to the reality of the presence of Jesus in verses 32 through 35. You see, it's one thing to say, I don't know if I believe it. Uh, hey, I'm willing to examine to see whether or not it's true. Hey, wait a minute. Now I know it's true. Because I haven't just seen Jesus 
through the eyes of history or through the eyes of theology, but through the personal eyes of a personal experience. The Life Application has this little note. It says, quote, the Life Application Bible, it says, we're likely to miss Jesus and withdraw from the strength found in other believers when we become preoccupied with our dashed hopes and our frustrated plans. When your plans are, are, are upset and your hopes have been undermined, it's hard to draw on the experiences and fellowship of other believers. Are you still wondering whether or not Jesus can show up on Easter morning and change your life? Change your heart. Change your marriage. Change your family. Change your ministry. Are you, or are you still like these disciples? Remember, they're unbelieving. They had the testimony of the angels. Didn't believe it. They had the testimony of the empty tomb. Didn't believe it. They had the testimony of the women. They didn't believe it. They had access to all of those things and walked away. And look what it says in verse 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Like so many today, they were slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Jesus basically said, you pick and choose what you want to believe in the Bible. But you're unwilling to believe all that the Bible says about your life, about your heart, about your circumstances, about the Savior. A lot of people want a Messiah who will make them rich or who will make them famous or who will make them happy. Few people will embrace a suffering Messiah Many will embrace a moral Messiah. They want a moral Jesus or a feel-good Jesus or a make-me-rich Jesus. They want the promises of heaven without the personal demands. William Booth's prediction for the 20th century and the 19th century has spilled into our own. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, said, quote, I consider the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost. Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, heaven without hell, unquote. And so, Jesus is the promise in all of the scriptures. Look what it says in verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, he expounded them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now I want you to get this. Beginning at Moses, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and all of the prophets, 
That's the Ketubim and Nebaim. This is all of the stuff that constitutes your Old Testament. He expounded to them in all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus begins and then continues to talk and makes the incredible statement that the entire Bible is a book about him. Elsewhere in the scriptures, he says, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have life, but they are those which testify to me. Jesus provides perhaps the most important principle in understanding the Bible and in understanding the scriptures. I have to repeat this. The key to understanding the scripture is to remember that Jesus is the subject of the scripture. He is both its subject, its object, and its context. Let me put it differently. Jesus makes the Bible make sense. And the Bible makes Jesus make sense. Because the Bible is a book about Jesus. And Jesus is the ultimate theme of the Bible. Had these despondent disciples already forgotten Isaiah 52 and 53, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Deuteronomy 18? But what this should do for you, what this should do for you is you should be able to go all the way. And it's okay. If you have a Bible with you, go all the way to the table of contents. Go to the table of contents in your Bible. Begin with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. Go to the table of contents and let me ask you this question. Can you find Jesus in every book of the Bible? In Genesis, he's the beginning, the chosen, the prepared, and the powerful one. He is the powerful Lord. In Exodus, he's the Passover, the redeemer of his people, and the merciful Lord. In, In Leviticus, he's the object of our worship. He is the one who's set apart. He is the one who's holy. He's the true sacrifice. He's the sanctifier of his people. In Numbers, he's the shepherd of his wandering people. He directs them. He sustains them. He tests them. He orders them to go. Go into the land. In Deuteronomy, Jesus is the great one who makes covenants with his people. He makes ready the nation. He teaches the nation. Jesus is the loving Lord and the great reward. Jesus is the one who calls on his people to say, obey. In Joshua, he is the second Joshua in the promised land. He is the one that we faithfully occupy. In Judges, he's the one who drives out sin. He provides deliverance from oppression and repentance and sorrow and deliverance from idolatry. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In 1 Samuel, he's the prophet. He's the priest. He's the judge. In 2 Samuel, he's David's son, greater than David. He's the true man after God's own heart. In 1 Kings, he's the true wisdom that has come from God, who's greater than Solomon. In 2 Kings, he's the faithful covenant to his people. He's Elisha's promise of grace. 
of life and a hope. In 1 Chronicles, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the true king on David's throne. In 2 Chronicles, he's the one who's greater than the temple. In Ezra, he's the promise of the future, the one who forgives and restores his people. In Nehemiah, he's the one who provides the promise of restoration, protection, leadership, and identification. In Esther, he is the one who places himself in the place of death, who wins the approval of the king who preserves his people. He is our advocate. In Job, he's the daysman. He's the mediator. He's the one who identifies with the suffering. He's the one who comes back to life. He's the one who is the only hope for redemption. In Psalms, he's our song. Jesus is our worship. And like the gospel, he is the servant, the son of man, and the son of God. In Proverbs, he is the wisdom of the ages, wisdom personified. He is the true knowledge of God. In Ecclesiastes, he is eternity in our hearts. He's the ultimate satisfaction. He is abundant life. In the Song of Solomon, he's the faithful husband. And the bride of Christ. In Isaiah, he's our salvation. In Jeremiah, he's the righteous branch who reigns and prospers. He is the Lord of righteousness. In the book of Lamentations, he's the one. Jesus is the weeping prophet who says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together to myself. Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets and the ones who are sent to her. Jesus is the king of sorrows and the one who is acquainted with grief. In Ezekiel, he's the Messiah, the king. He's the tender twig and the stately cedar and the lofty mountain. In Daniel, he's the great stone that comes from heaven and crushes the kingdoms of men. He's the ancient of days and the Messiah who is cut off in Daniel. In Hosea, he is undying and loyal love. In Joel, he's the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. He's the one who judges the nations in the valley of decision. In Amos, he's the one with all authority to judge and restore the people. In Obadiah, he's the one who judges the nations. He's the savior of Israel. He's the possessor of the kingdom. In Jonah, he's the son of man in the belly of the sea creature. He's the one who's greater than Jonah. He's the one who dies and comes back to life. In Micah, he's the promise of Bethlehem. He's the one whose going forth was from everlasting to everlasting. In Nahum, he's the judge of the nations at the second coming. In Habakkuk, he's the justifier of the faithful. The one who fills the knowledge with the glory of God. In Zephaniah, he is that great day of the Lord. In Haggai, he's the one who restores the temple. He's the one who blesses his people. He's Zerubbabel's signet ring. In Zechariah, he is God who becomes man. He's the righteous branch. He's the stone with seven eyes. He's the king who is the priest. He's the good shepherd. He's the one who sold for 30 pieces of silver. He's the one who's pierced. He's the one who's smitten. He's the one who's abandoned. He's the one who is the coming judge and the righteous king in Malachi. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and reconciles the fathers to their children.
Jesus doesn't give them simply a list of rules or doctrines or regulations or powerful points of prophecy. Look what the text says in verse 27. He talked about the things concerning himself. The main point of his message must have been that the Messiah had to suffer and die and come back to life and enter into glory. Think about what you're reading. The men listened. They talked. They laughed. And when Jesus pretended, I need to go on and I'm going to keep going on, they begged Jesus to stay with them in verse 29. That's what the word constrained means. The word constrained actually means to almost physically by force make a person stay. It reminds me of my Italian grandma. When, when you're in an Italian grandma's house and she goes, do you want more food? If you say no, she gives you more food. If you say yes, she gives you a whole lot more food. And you'll remember, Jesus prays. And now their eyes are opened. Warren Wearsby writes, they had been won by the word of God. They didn't even know who the stranger was. All they knew was that their hearts were burning and that they wanted the blessing to last. Unquote. That's true. The more we receive the word of God, the more we want fellowship with the God of the word. The more we receive the word of God, the more we want fellowship with the God of the word. Now they know for themselves that Jesus is alive. It isn't just simply an angelic visit. It isn't simply an empty tomb. It isn't simply the testimony of people who say that their lives have been changed and transformed. They're aware of the empty tomb. They know about the angel's message. But now they know for themselves. And even though Jesus vanishes, he never really leaves at all. He was still with them. And the best evidence that we've met the living Lord of the universe is that we do exactly what they do. They get up and they go back to Jerusalem in verses 30 through through 35. And they say, guess what? Jesus is alive. Let's talk about that just for a moment. What a difference. What a difference, what a difference when Jesus is alive. Not just socially, politically, theologically, religiously, 
but alive in your heart. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone took a little walk with Jesus to remind themselves about a living Lord instead of a living heart? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for a living Lord. Lord, again, I, I pray for that person who's come to church. And, and again, it's church. It's church as usual. But Lord, I pray that perhaps, Lord, that they've been touched in their heart. That, Lord, that they would allow you, the living Lord of the universe, to determine the direction for the rest of the day. Lord, I pray that they would, and we would, do exactly what these disciples do after taking a, a walk with Jesus and having a Bible study with Jesus, that we would be willing to tell others exactly what we heard and exactly what happened. And again, Father, we know that the resurrection of Jesus means that you're satisfied and glorified. The resurrection means that our sins are gone. The resurrection means that we're united to Christ. The resurrection means that every foe is vanquished. The resurrection means that we get to live forever with you. The resurrection means that you will impart your spirit to everyone who believes. In Jesus' name. Amen.